we still have structures that were not set up to help people, you know, in the ways that we think technology can. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out what lies behind the passion for their work, the inspiration for their ideas, and the motivation for their creativity. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Michelle Rogers is an associate professor at Drexel University's College of Computing and Informatics. Her research focuses on how people interact with and use information technology in complex settings. Her most recent work focuses on information technology and user experience within the healthcare system. Hey, Michelle. How are you today? I'm doing really good. Welcome to my Zoom room. Thank you. It's great to have you. Um, it's great to record with you in the middle of the pandemic. pandemic. Yes. I'm super interested to know where you grew up and if that had any impact on how you thought about the world and what you decided to do in it. I guess it did. I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. And as I tell people before Brooklyn was cool, it was more when Brooklyn was Brooklyn, you know, it was not. Right. Um, it was more the Brooklyn of a, a, a more rougher time. Let me just say it that way. But but I did uh, graduate from public schools in Brooklyn. Had a great experience. Uh, you went to a really fancy magnet uh, high school, right? Right. Well, it wasn't really fancy. There is at the time. There's a test that you mm -hmm. take for the science high schools in New York. Mm -hmm. And actually, my school was the lowest of the three. So there were like Okay, three so wait, you, you weren't at Bronx Science. You I was not at Bronx Science. I was not at Stuyvesant. You were at Stuyvesant. You're at the <laughs> other one. at Brooklyn Tech, yes. There we go. Okay, <laughs> Which, okay. I guess the thing that is interesting is that Brooklyn Tech had been all boys until 1977. Right. So... That was, it was before I went, so I can say that I'm not that quite that old, but there were not that many uh, female that went there. Right. So at the time, I did not want to go because I, everybody knew that it was one, not a lot of girls there, and two, they were known to be very nerdy, even though, mm. so I think that while there, I did experience uh, being the only one. And so I guess that kind of helped me when I went to college in doing science and technology because I was not, it wasn't odd for me to be the only or one of few in a classroom. That's super interesting. So you, yeah. wait, what did you major in when you went to college? <laughs> so when I went to college, I was dual degree engineering, actually. I was electrical engineering major. Um, so and actually at Brooklyn Tech, you have to pick a major. I oh, did wow. not okay. pick, I did not pick engineering though, because there were very few girls in that major. And at the time I was just like, I didn't want to totally be surrounded by dudes at all times. So I chose graphic <laughs> communications, and which is really interesting now that I do human computer interaction because it does draw back on, on a little bit of what we, initially learned back then but uh i i do think it's interesting that even then it was not a lot of not a lot of women uh in my classes 
So it um, seems like you've been, um, so you've been thinking about women in technology and their role in yeah. technology mm-hmm. in an all in male dominated fields for a very long time, at least very since you were time. a teenager, which is yes. why you chose like, all women's college to go to. College, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, actually, I did not want to go there. I did not want to go to Spelman when I was looking at colleges. I ended up going there primarily. My dad recommended I go there and. Up until like April, I was going to North Carolina A&T. That's where I thought I wanted to go. I thought that's where I was going. And then I got into Spelman and something said, oh, this might be really interesting. And when we got there after my freshman year, I just knew it was the best place ever. Right. I just knew it was the place to be. So I was really glad I made that decision. Uh, but then when I did dual degree, so part of dual degree is you go for your three years at Spelman and then you do two years at an engineering school. But those three years were really difficult <laughs> because of the physics and the math that were really, uh, that took a lot of people out. It really, a lot of women who, you know, in high school, they had been top of their class. When they got that first D in calculus, it was a shocker. And so yeah, a lot of people yeah. started out doing a degree and not many of us finished. So we live in a world that is full of machines, maybe more so now than 20 years ago, even. Yeah. Everything is mediated, including the conversation that we're having right now. Exactly. Which, which could not have happened 20 years ago. Right. Um, and we're in the midst of a pandemic and the world goes on. Mm-hmm. Because we've already built an infrastructure where we can all just plug in machines. Mm-hmm. I just wonder as as you as you walk through the world and you, you bump into all of these people and all and see them interacting, are you generally from your lens frustrated, like, oh, it could be so much better? Or are you encouraged, like, wow, look at us. We are really rocking on our human machine interaction. So I guess on the most optimistic days, (laughs) I am excited about what we can now do. Like I just got an iPad like literally a couple months ago for a research project. So my first time FaceTiming was a couple of days ago. (laughs) So I think that is fantastic. So my mom can talk to her grandkids and we can FaceTime and that's wonderful. But at the same time, I also am seeing the limitations of everything that we do like it's really really frustrating that these machines don't talk to each other that we're so focused on keeping the profit margin of our little company that i can't make an interface for you to talk to this other company so even though we're having all these wonderful things with the being able to have first responders take care of people ultimately they're doing that outside of any information system because if they tried to do it where they want to try to get your record from your hospital, they could not do it just because, well, I can't share that information because it's at Penn versus it's at Hahnemann when it was still open. You know, like just, we just can't connect them. And that to me is very frustrating. So I would, so you mentioned this, and I'd love to talk to you about your work with clinical information systems. So specifically, mm-hmm. Um, the way in which information flows throughout the healthcare system. So originally, like as you were saying, we couldn't do this 20 years ago. So when I first got my dissertation, my dissertation work was on how the implementation of electronic health records was changing the work of people in clinics. So at the time, it was when, when EHRs first came out, 
they had clerks entering information because they were trying to get the paper into the computer. And these clerks, this was outside of the realm of what they had been trained to do. They don't exactly know all the meanings of everything. They are not clinically trained. So it was a lot, a lot of pushback, primarily because it was just outside of their work. So part of my dissertation was just trying to understand how it changed their work and then how are we going to maintain that? And so, you know, over the last 20 years, we've had several presidential administrations, several uh, things from top down, trying to push people toward making information available wherever it is. And so most of the work that I did was looking at, okay, how can we design this interface so that doctors and nurses and everybody else that looks at that information gets it when they need it, where they need it, that it's accurate and that it's not um, telling a story or hiding a story. And so what we found in some of the work that I've done over the years is that one, that there are ways that because programmers, for the most part, they, the, the, the computer science folks that are designing these systems work in the IT side of the house. They don't work in the medical side of the house. So some right. of the decisions they make are based on either financial decisions or things that they like or they design interfaces that they like or what they think would work. Hmm. And so part of what we, what one of the biggest things actually we did at the Department of Veterans Affairs was just getting the, the, the computer science folks to understand that you need to let somebody clinical look at this and let them tell you whether or not this supports what they do or are you making their job more difficult and thus you're getting bad information into the system. So, so that was one of the things we looked at. And then as we move forward, since I've been at Drexel, one of the projects we looked at was really interesting is they had a group, a family group um, that would meet of, of expecting mothers and fathers that would meet at a clinic over in North Philly. And part of that group was helping the women understand what to expect while they were pregnant. And so the group would meet every week and uh, there's a, uh, a group of statewide um, public health departments that would send emails. It was called text for baby and still exists today. And you could sign up for text for baby. So based on the gestational age of your child, you would get a text about, Oh, now you should be feeling this. And it went to like one or two, three years. And we actually tested whether or not that was effective and how did it support the women that would come and how did it not support the women? And did they ignore the messages? Did it help if it had a link that would take them to another page? Maybe the links could take you to a website that would say, okay, you're at seven weeks. The baby should be kicking. The baby yeah. should be doing such and such to kind of give women comfort and so especially for women who maybe got two prenatal visits or only just went once or twice, this would allow them to be supported in another in a, a different way. So, so I'm, su I, I'm super interested. So one yeah. was text for was text for baby efficacious. And yeah. two, did they really debate the name? Because text for baby sounds like <laughs> sounds like an app that you go on and then like Amazon shows up with a toddler at your <laughs> like it's just it's a bad name. It, 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 is, it is. It did work. It did work that the moms did report. They liked getting the reminders, especially after they were born. So one of the biggest challenges is, and especially at a clinic, is you might see the mom until they gave birth. 
And because of the way Philly is set up and where babies are born, you could get your prenatal care one place and then deliver somewhere else. And then you might not ever go back to that clinic. So they might never know what happened after the baby was there. You might not still be getting the support. But at least if you signed up for text for baby that because I think it went to one or two years old, it would still give you reminders oh, this should be happening now. If this is not happening now, you you know, maybe you should go see someone or it allowed it allowed for the information to move beyond just coming to the clinic, which is an older model. Yeah. And for a, this new generation of moms, they might not come to the clinic, you know, every month like they should. But if they got a text message, maybe they would, or maybe it would remind them that this is something they should do. But it wasn't as wonderful as everybody thought it was because one of the biggest problems is, especially in low-income communities, people use phones. The phones that people have, their numbers change a lot because if they don't pay the bill, they got to get a new phone. And so the challenge would be, while a mom might have this phone number for two months, yeah, by the time Month the kid four, was a the, year old, she yeah, had a They got a new form. number. And so yeah, having to right. remind them to, so how do you right. deal with that? How do you right. deal with, okay, they got a new number. Does it follow the mom? What happens? You know, and all of that. So yeah, it's, that was, so that's where the technology works to a certain extent. But after a certain point, we still got to rely on people, right? We still have to, we got to make sure they work together. And so that's a challenge that we're still struggling with, especially with lower income families that are working on that model. There's so much in that um, mm-hmm. example that you just gave that that's there to unpack. Um, yeah. That the system seems to have been designed by people who made an assumption, which yeah. is yeah. if you have a cell phone and a cell phone number, you're going to have it for 20 years. No, yes. <laughs> Who changes their cell phone number? And but they were trying to serve a whole group of people who changed their cell mm-hmm. phone numbers often. And you wouldn't have guessed that while you put this. Exactly. Exactly. You would have never thought the, if the you weren't thing, in that community, you wouldn't yeah, have guessed that. Right. The other thing, it seems like it was, um, it was a one way communication and I totally yes. get it. Like, yes. like, Hey, have you remembered to mm-hmm. do X because your baby is Y old? Yeah. But but it wasn't a system that allowed a parent to go, hey, this is what my baby's doing. Are we mm-hmm. on track? Yep. Yep. Right. You couldn't ask. Que- you couldn't query it. You couldn't ask questions. Yep. Yep. So now there are there are much more advanced systems there, especially out of a uh, Columbia University. Kind of um, was at the forefront of this work, and they've been doing a lot more. Where now they do allow a, a call back, right. um, but once again, you have to be connected to that health system. So still we're stuck in the structure of what healthcare system are you with? It is, it's still, we still have structures that were not set up to help people, you know, in the ways that we think technology can. So I I think, you know, it would be a tragedy to ignore the elephant in a room and not ask you, are you surprised that we don't have a more robust system um, connected system with re- with regard to like logistics and equipment that connect local hospitals to local health authorities mm-hmm. to the national stockpile. Right. It seems like we're in a health information crisis 
and logistical crisis as much as we are a biologic crisis. Mm -hmm. And are you surprised that those systems don't exist? And do you think the current situation will spurn us to allow these things to talk to one another? Unfortunately, probably not. Um, Because, so we saw something similar after Hurricane Katrina. (laughs) So most of the, most of the hospitals in um, Louisiana, in South, Southern Louisiana were totally, totally decimated and offline. The only thing that saved the VA's facilities was that some of their, that because they have an internet, they have a national system, they could recover some people's records. But we still haven't totally digested what happened and then been able to think forward. So there is an office of the National Coordinator for um, Health Information Technology. And so they are, Um, They are active in the space in terms of trying to get systems connected. But what ends up happening is you get bogged down in, should we be regulating electronic health records? Should we be um, demanding that the companies that are in the space already um, tell us about their errors that are going on? Should we require usability standards? Like, so we're so bogged down in the details that, we still have yet to look at the overall picture. And I think what we're seeing big time is that there are states and regions that are way above other states and other regions. A small state like Delaware, pretty much everybody is in, um, gets their care from um, one uh, uh, system. So they're kind of sort of like the model. But when you get to a big state like Pennsylvania that's so long and um, has rural areas and city areas and then suburban areas. And so you have some states that have a lot of that stuff and they're doing really well and they're more organized. And now you see there are states that can, you know, make their manufacturing turn on a dime and they have strong governors that can do that. But because there was a weak response nationally it kind of let it kind of like the chips fell where they may and if you had if you were in a state with a strong if you had strong infrastructure then you were able to move forward but if you were in a place with a weak one um it feels bad for you you know it's just unfortunate you know but it, the push towards a national healthcare system right now it seems to be stalled, and I don't think that is really going to matter who gets elected. We're probably not going to get one. That's probably a pessimistic view, but it's probably more <laughs> true. But yeah. um, the best thing that will come out will be probably the logistics. It'll probably be a better way to get masks and uh, equipment and things like that. You know, wow. but so what are you working on now? Yeah. <laughs> so so, so right what is now, your, actually, what's your big research question? So right now our big research question is, okay, so now we're in this place where more people have broadband, more people have some way to get access to a smartphone or at least have a plan that allows them to have access to data. And so working with um, a former graduate student at who's the CIO, the chief information officer at um, CHOP is looking at now what is the role of, 
personal health records. And so now there is this face where most likely your health record at your hospital has a patient portal that you can access. And so now what we're studying um, is, okay, so our patients, so now that we have these patient portals that are now patient facing, it's connected to the hospital and, and they can get access to, they can, right now, pretty much only thing you can do is get access to your records. I mean, access to your appointments. You can't really access your records, but you could maybe send them a note or you could get your kids, um, you could get a copy of your kid's record or your copy, your copy of your kid's um, sports uh, review that they have to turn in at the beginning of the year. Right now, you can, right. you can usually get that, but that's kind of like the limit of it. And so now we're trying to understand. So yes, now we're in this sweet spot where everybody thought in the 2010s, everybody was like, oh, once people can get patient portals, we'll be in heaven because you could look on your phone and you could look at all what you're taking care of. We're there. You might be able to get that value, but we're still not at that point where your doctor will say, I'm going to send you this on, you know, through the, I'm going to send you it on the patient portal. You can look it up. And any questions you have, it could be answered right there. Or if you message the nurse, she'll answer you. Yeah, so what I mean, does that it, mean? Yeah, like what's the problem there? Is it that people aren't included as we design the systems? And so there tends to be this disjunction once you roll it out. Or is it mm-hmm. just education of everybody about why this is a better way to approach the problem? Like what's the issue? <laughs> well, one thing we know is that the literature from way back in the 80s told us that just giving people information is not enough to make them act. So just because you know you shouldn't eat chips, chips wow. are good. So you're going to eat chips. So, you know, so I'm sorry, them, are you, is my video on right now? I apologize. <laughs> so we know that that's the case. So we know education is not just it. Right. The And so one of the things we do know, though, is if the doctor tells you it, more than likely, you'll do it if the doctor tells you. So we know it's some combo of we got to tell a doctor, we have to get the doctors to buy in more, which means it needs to be more a part of what the doctor does on a regular basis for the doctor to see value in it and then for it to go to the patient. But then also we need to understand what does the patient view their phone for? What we found, especially in underserved communities, is that their phone is their phone. They go on Facebook, they go on Instagram, they go on TikTok. They do not go on their phone to get health care. So <laughs> there is a right. there's a jump that has to be made. Now, that that is all that though is not necessarily true with young people. What they have found is that teens and early 20s will ask questions that they're embarrassed to ask. In the doctor's office, they will ask on an app what they have. I'm, I'm so to. afraid that teens are getting health information on TikTok. That would just, <laughs> exactly. Just that is and that is a problem. Exactly. That's a problem. <laughs> but the thing is, they have found though, that they can get at teens that way. Right. So you have this disconnect, though. So teens will ask, but they ask the questions they're ashamed about. Their parents, though, <laughs> just don't do anything. Their parents are just like, oh, I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to ask it on my phone because that's not what I do with my phone. And so we're at this point where we have to understand the culture and the technology and try to understand how we can help the culture more understand how the technology is useful. 
So, so two yeah, questions we're, about we're at the that future. Point. Yeah. So two questions about the future. How far away are we from being able to just go into a physician's office in any state, hand mm-hmm. him our phone, and upload yeah. our entire medical history, including every x-ray that we've ever had mm-hmm. taken and all our CAT scans, and it's right there right. for it, right? Right, um, exactly. Are we five years, 10 years, 50 years? <laughs> One would hope not 50 years. But definitely, definitely more than five, unfortunately. Now, um, I would say there are certain states that you might be able to do that. Within a health system, you might be able to do it in a couple of years. So if you're in Blue Cross Blue Shield, whatever the name of it is, whatever state you're in, there might be, in a couple of years, you might at least be able to see what's been digitized forward. So if you're over probably if you're over 45 you won't be able to get that old 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 stuff like from when you're a kid or anything like that but you probably right. would get you probably would be able to get as much information as since when you joined that healthcare system for hmm. that is probably more reasonable you could probably get that but the the issue is usually just in between systems that's the problem we will have regional. I think the first step will be regional, probably regional systems. So just like we have Easy Pass in this Northeast, Mid-Atlantic area, eventually, right. I think probably in maybe 10 years, we'll probably have that capability in this area just because there's so much movement, Mid-Atlantic, Eastern. And you'll probably have the same thing in a state big as California. But across the nation, it will take a big shift in politics and really that's all it is is politics for politicians to get beyond trying to trying to have companies be able to own their data and hmm. own your data i should say so until we get over that hump it's it's, it's gonna be a while dr michelle rogers thank you for being on the Ten Thousand hours thank you so much for having me this was great Drexel's 10,000 Hour Podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barrett. Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast is powered by Drexel University Online. 